This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, Le Show, Jim Hightower, The Majority Report, The Progressive, NPR, Mumia Abu-Jamal, and The Colbert Report with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. A number of major international leaders are basically pleading with the U.S. and the world to get smart and stop the, the war on drugs. And we've talked about the war on drugs off and on for a while. And it's come up on the show in a number of different ways. Really, though, Lewis, we are starting to see more and more evidence that the way the United States is handling nonviolent drug offenses and the criminalization of certain drugs is really just not working for a variety of reasons. And well, that, I, that's old news. I know many conservatives say that we progressives who are into the decriminalization of drugs, it's because we're potheads. And that's really not the case. I'm not a marijuana user. Quite frankly, uh, let, let me be complete, without identifying anybody specific, there's some marijuana users at my condo complex, which I find incredibly annoying. I hate the smell. I really wish that they just wouldn't do it. I, I really wish they would actually move out, to be completely honest, and I hope they don't listen to the show. I can't imagine they do. But really, the amount of problems and the amount of waste in terms of resources and money that is going into the war on drugs is getting to the point where it just belies any kind of logic and reason. Lewis is stunned. He doesn't even know how to respond. I agree. There's a number of countries that have enacted harm reduction strategies, which include syringe access, medication, public health initiatives, United Kingdom, Switzerland, Germany, Austri Australia. They've all had reduced rates of HIV transmission among people who inject drugs, especially when compared to countries that are actively resisting these strategies, like Thailand and Russia, and I think it's just obvious. But beyond that, look at the problems that California is having as a result of overcrowding of prisons to the point where we just heard conservatives flip out 10 days ago because they were considering the release of some nonviolent offenders and wait a second why are so many of those in there because of overcriminalization of nonviolent drug offenses i actually saw an interesting study i've seen a documentary and read about Portugal in 2001 being the first European country to decriminalize the use and possession of all absolutely all drugs. Okay? Tons of criticism about this. People saying it would lead to greater drug use and the problems associated with it. Now, a couple of weeks ago on the show, I mentioned that I thought Ron Paul was being a little silly when he said if you were to legalize heroin, would anyone in this room use it? Raise your hand and nobody did and that was taken for Ron Paul as a sign that people wouldn't start using heroin if it was legal. I completely disagree with that premise. The question is, on the whole, in term, taking into consideration all of the factors, including law enforcement being able to focus in other areas, focus on violent offenses, the possibility of taxing and actually deriving revenue from certain drug sales, and the prison situation, which in this country is just, it's appalling, Lewis. It actually, in Portugal, did not really, it, it went okay. I mean, I can't say it was a, just a blinding success, but it really went okay. Removing criminality and combining it with very accessible therapy and substance abuse programs have actually reduced the burden on law enforcement and problematic drug use has actually been reduced. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people doing drugs that 
more that wouldn't have that otherwise. wouldn't have otherwise. We can't say that. But what the indication is is that problematic drug use and the the cost in terms of resources, government resources, has actually been alleviated right. significantly. Right. At the same time, if we can we can take care of different problems without making legalizing marijuana. And don't get me wrong, I'm a fan of legalizing marijuana, but like we just did here in Massachusetts, de decriminalization, bleh, decriminalization. Right. And you can expand on that too. I mean, you can make it uh, a non-criminal offense to have here. It's what is it? It's an ounce. I, I wouldn't know. If you have more than an ounce, um, you can get hit with intent to distribute. Right. I mean, we could get rid of that too. Well, there, there are th steps you can take without doing a whole nationwide decriminalization of all drugs. So the Government Accountability Office just released a report that shows the billions of dollars that we have spent on the war on drugs in Mexico. And that money has essentially been wasted and no one has been overseeing that money. All right. Now, just to be clear, just to give you some numbers, we have spent $1.6 billion to fight the drug cartels in Mexico. $1.6 billion. And, um, even though that we've, we've spent that much money, nearly 25,000 people have been killed in Mexico because of uh, drug-related violence. Yes. Now, uh, the $1.6 billion for the Merit, what they call the Merida Initiative uh, has been spent over the last two years. Now, that's an enormous sum of money in a short period of time. And the number of people killed has gone dramatically up, not down. Now, remember, Calderon's government started this war on drugs internally in Mexico, and he says, oh, well, the cartels have been getting weaker. The evidence seems to be quite to the contrary. They are not getting weaker. The violence is way up. And the amount of drugs coming into the country has not been reduced almost at all. Okay? And so what are the results? What are the quantifiable results? Nothing. Nothing. Even Hillary Clinton went to Mexico and said, it appears that American demand for drugs is insatiable. Okay, because it is. Now, when you break down the numbers of how America is spending their money, supply side and demand side, two-thirds of the money is still going to the supply side, meaning trying to, uh, you know, break up the drug cartels, make sure the drugs don't cross the border, et cetera, et cetera. Only a third of it, about 34%, is getting uh, spent on the demand side, trying to make sure that people don't take drugs, you know, rehabilitation, et cetera, et cetera. Now, does that proportion make any sense? The proof is in the pudding. It doesn't make sense. It's not working. The drugs are just as rampant as they were before, and the violence is significantly worse. Why? It's not the drugs that are causing the violence. It's the gangs. And why do the gangs exist? Because of prohibition. We've got marijuana prohibition here. We've got drug prohibition. And just like alcohol prohibition, it ain't working. You know, but what's so mind-blowing about this story is the fact that supporters of the prohibition 
want to reject these facts, okay? And how do I know that? From one small part of this article that talks about how authorities in Mexico say, oh, the reason why the violence has increased is because the drug cartels feel threatened, they're becoming weaker, so they're just projecting. Yeah, that's exactly what they used to say about Iraq in the height of the Civil War, like in 2006, when everybody's getting murdered left and right, Shiites, Sunnis, everything's blown up. Bush is like, oh, that's great evidence that they're getting weaker. Yeah, it, they're not getting weaker. <laughs> they're stronger than ever. Yeah. They're stronger than ever. It was nonsense then, it's nonsense now. Uh, it's, it's crazy because, uh, look, I'm just afraid that we're going to keep going down this path Thousands of people are going to continue dying in Mexico and in the border cities in the United States. And, you know, we need to start finding ways to convince politicians that there needs to be a shift in drug policy and a shift in the paradigm. It's just not happening. And it's scary. It's scary to know that people are still supporting this massive waste of money toward a failed war. I'm 100% with you. One last thing. How do you pronounce that? Because I'm terrible with Spanish. Ciudad. Ciudad Juarez. Now the deadliest city in the world. How's your drug war working out for you? It's a freaking disaster. Okay. Look, I'm calling it. I've called it before. But we got to get it through their thick skulls. We're never going to win the war on drugs. It's an asinine war. It's like the war on oxygen. Okay. You think you're going to win that? You're not going to win it? It's stupid. You, you know, what could we do with $1.6 billion? Imagine if we'd given $1.6 million to Mexico for education, for building up industry, manufacturing, etc., then maybe we wouldn't have as much illegal immigration. Maybe Mexico's economy would do a lot better. Imagine if we'd invested in healthcare for Mexico. Imagine if we invested in healthcare for us or education for us in the United States. This is crazy. We're wasting money. We're only making things much, much worse. We've got to end this asinine war on drugs. Come on. How immune to facts are we? One more thing. As soon as politicians leave office, they tell you the truth. Now Vicente Fox, who used to be the leader of Mexico, is saying, oh, yeah, yeah, the war on drugs is never going to work. Why didn't you say that when you were in charge? And everybody who leaves office, on both sides of the border, as soon as they go, oh, well, now that I can tell you the truth, yeah, we know it's never going to work. Stop wasting our money and stop getting these guys killed. If we legalize marijuana, that's at least 50% of the entire drug trade. Do you know how much damage that would do to the gangs and how much it would reduce gang violence? 25,000 people died in Mexico over this, man. That's, that's an enormous number. Enough is enough. End this stupid prohibition. Let's get beyond it already. Colombian bioengineers create a guns and drugs tree. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. 
Scientists in Bogota, Colombia, achieved a major breakthrough today by altering a common jungle tree to produce a renewable source of semi-automatic weapons and narcotics. Project leader Emil de Velasquez hailed the project as a great example of cooperation between business, government, and the scientific community. Now that the nation of Colombia is in possession of this tree, no one can stop us. This follows a recent announcement that Colombia's neighbor Brazil has developed a hybridized vine that oozes pure pornography. Doyle Redland for The Onion. We hunched together in one chair out on the deck In snow that froze and fell down on the modern set It looked as if I picked your name out of a hat Next thing you know you are asleep in someone's lap Watch and run Although it's the minimum Heroic now, this is your brain on the war on drugs. Health experts in Portugal have said in the last couple of weeks that Portugal's decision 10 years ago to decriminalize drug use. Did you know about that? Why are we all still here? And to treat addicts rather than punishing them is an experiment that has worked. There is no doubt that the phenomenon of addiction is in decline not cloin, decline in Portugal, says João Gulau, president of the Institute of Drugs and Drugs Addiction. The number of addicts considered problematic, those who repeatedly use hard drugs and intravenous users, had fallen by half since the early 1990s. Other factors had also played their part, says Gulau, a medical doctor. Uh, the other factors are treatment and risk reduction policies, not just decriminalization. Portugal's holistic approach had also led to a spectacular, quotes, reduction in the number of infections among intravenous users and a significant drop in drug-related crimes, he added. The uh, law did not legalize drug use, but forced users caught with banned substances to appear in front of special addiction panels rather than criminal court. The panels composed of psychologists, judges, and social workers recommended action based on the specifics of each case. Government panels recommended a response based largely on whether the individual is an occasional drug user or an addict. Of the 40,000 people currently being treated, the vast majority of problematic users are today supported by a system that does not treat them as delinquents but as sick people, says Gulau. Drug use statistics in Portugal are generally below the European average and much lower than its only European neighbor, Spain. And, just over a year ago, the powers that be in Philadelphia effectively decriminalized possession of small amounts of marijuana. Why are we still here? Why are we? By offering offenders the, choice, the chance to enroll in a three-hour class that would expunge the offense from their records. Not only did this give Philadelphia police more time and energy to focus on more serious crimes, but the city has saved thousands of dollars. Under the program, being caught with 30 grams of marijuana up to is no longer a misdemeanor, but a summary offense. You can pay $200 to attend a three-hour class on the ills of drug use and abuse, and the record is wiped clean of the offense. 
The city has saved, according to District Attorney Seth Williams, $2 million in the last 12 months. But, you know, who cares? Cities don't have financial problems now. They can spend whatever they want on whatever they want. That's how they do. That's your brain on the war on drugs. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Lewis, for a while we've been talking about the failures of the American war on drugs, the overcrowding of prisons with uh, nonviolent offenders, the waste of money, the lack of effectiveness. And you know that the arguments aren't because uh, I actually would partake in any of the drug usage. You know I complain to you constantly about my neighbors with their uh, marijuana smoking and it just being one of the most annoying things happening where I live, uh, right. period, actually. Mm -hmm. And I know you experience the same thing at, at your uh, condo complex as well. No. Right. Well, just because he doesn't want to talk about it, I, I forgot about that, Lewis. <laughs> okay. Anyway, in any event, Lewis is on this, in the same boat. Believe me, ladies and gentlemen. Portugal is celebrating the 10-year anniversary. Lewis is not happy right now. Uh, uh, I'm not unhappy. I'm just... <laughs> I'm confused. You are, <laughs> I was confused by Portugal decriminalizing all drugs, but it's been 10 years, Lewis, and if we actually look at the numbers, it has been effective or successful by any measure that we choose to use. Mm -hmm. And it's more proof that the American drug war of 40 years, really, I don't think we can say that it has failed, period, but thus far, it has been a failure. I don't even know if there's a difference there, but it just feels a little bit less... Uh, I don't know, one-sided in some way. And it may be time for an exit strategy for what arguably is the longest, costliest war the U.S. has been involved in. Because as we see, despite $40 billion spent every year on the U.S. drug war and 500,000 people behind bars on drug-related offenses, drugs are as available as ever. I don't know anyone who would disagree with that. And Portu Portugal decriminal decriminalized all drugs 10 years ago and has experienced over that 10-year period decreased drug use among youth, falling overdose and HIV-AIDS rates, less criminal justice expenditures, greater access to drug treatment, and safer and healthier communities overall. In 2001, Portugal decriminalized the possession of small amounts of illicit substances. So having small amounts of drugs is no longer a criminal offense. It's still against the rules. It just won't get you thrown in jail or prison. It's a civil offense like a ticket. Portugal continues to punish sales and trafficking of illegal substances, illicit substances rather. And 
in Portugal, this re-envisioned drug policy has officers issuing citations but not arresting people. And then there is kind of an intervention team, which is not part of the criminal justice system, which will try to dissuade individuals from drug use. What do you think about this, Lewis? Any surprise that this is the effect that it's had? Because many people say that if you do this, if you decriminalize all drugs, overdose rates, abuse rates, usage rates, period, amongst kids will actually increase. And Portugal has seen the exact opposite. Yeah, I mean, if it works, clearly it did work in Portugal, but does, does that mean it will work here? Well, the culture is completely different. Right. You're right. Uh, there are many places around the world where the drinking age is lower, and it does not seem to experience the adverse effects that were seen in the U.S. when the drinking age was temporarily lowered to 18 in years past. So... Just a cultural difference you think could make that much of a difference in terms of decriminalization of these drugs? I don't know, but it's possible. The other issue that we also have to discuss is it's not like we can just fill the prisons up with nonviolent drug offenders with no negative repercussions. And as we saw, what was it, six, eight weeks ago, we had the story about California being in a position where they were considering having to release a lot of nonviolent drug offenders early or rather release some of their prisoners early. And those that came to the, to the forefront of the discussion were nonviolent drug offenders. So if we're already going to those as the first ones that we would release in the cases of prison overcrowding, if we're already thinking and have actually, for example, in here in Massachusetts, in, uh, we had the decriminalization of marijuana, small, small personal use amounts. If we're already going in that direction in terms of the next step thought process, there must be something to it. And the arguments against, again, I, I don't even care about this, to be completely honest, because I, I just, I find marijuana used to be pretty annoying. Um, and I know I get emails every time I say that, but hey, that's, that's, just, that's just what it is. Uh, it does really seem, Lewis, like the negative effects that many people predict are, are all but non-existent. It's still hard to say with certain drugs, uh, considering the youth in our society. I don't know. Well, when Ron Paul said, would anyone in this room start using heroin if it was legalized tomorrow and no one put their hands up, and Ron Paul said, see, nobody would use it. I completely disagreed because I, I do not believe that if you legalize heroin, you will not have increased use of heroin. The question is, if it's properly regulated and monitored, will you have increased youth usage and will you have increased overdose rates? And that is the part that simply has not been proven by fact. Right. I mean, there's only one way to find out if it'll work or not, and that's to implement it. But I, I mean, I think you can start let's say, start with marijuana, right? At the federal At level. At the federal level. Perhaps even, uh, even make, uh, make it, even sell it. Not just decriminalization of in small other words, amounts of In other words, the government it. is involved in the same way that they regulate cigarettes. cigarettes. Right. They regulate marijuana sales and it can be sold over the counter. I think you could start with marijuana, see where it goes. Wow. Well, Lewis going uh, even a step further here than I was prepared to go. Well... I mean, the marijuana thing is huge. I think if you were to do that, I think it would just be better for the world. Economically, also, there's an argument to be made. The government, I mean, can you imagine? They would, they would make so much more money off marijuana than they do off cigarettes.
All right. Well, Lewis, a big advocate here. Do you, do you agree? Yeah. No. It it would be it would be a significant financial it could, it, impact. It could solve the debt crisis. I don't know if I'd go that no, far. I'm it kidding. could make a big dent. I'm kidding. It but, could make a big dent in financial yeah. problems. California was the first state to make medical marijuana legal back in 1996. Now, for the first time ever, a federal agency has recognized that marijuana does have medical benefits. Last week, the National Cancer Institute added a summary of marijuana's possible benefits to its treatment, treatment database. It reads, quote, the potential benefits of medical, medicinal, I should say, cannabis for people living with cancer include antiemetic, oh, I hope I got that right, effects, appetite, appetite st stimulation, pain relief, and improved sleep. In the practice of interactive oncology, the healthcare provider may recommend medicinal cannabis not only for symptom management, but also for its possible direct anti-tumor effect. So that's a lot of medical benefits. This new assessment from the National Cancer Institute could have an impact on the classification of marijuana as a Schedule One drug. That's the harshest possible drug degree classification. One of the main criteria for a Schedule One drug is that, quote, the drug or other substance has no currently accepted medical use in treatment in the United States. Now, if a federal agency has recognized the medicinal benefits of marijuana, technically, it shouldn't be moved down to a Schedule Three drug. But a change of scheduling for pot could also mean an end to the federal government using a tax law loophole to put medical marijuana shops out of business. For years, the IRS has been citing Section 280E of the tax code that blocks medical shops from getting business tax deductions. It reads, quote, no deduction or credit shall be allowed for any amount paid if such trade or business consists of trafficking and controlled substances within the meaning of Schedule 1 and 2 of Controlled Substances Act. So if pot ends up becoming a Schedule 3 drug, this loophole that the feds are using would have no standing. You understand the importance of this? Then they could not bust all those shops that are selling marijuana. Finally, the government has admitted, you know what? Medical marijuana does have benefits. Now, can we stop this madness? It's been nearly 75 years on this war on drugs. It's not working. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
Much of the success of American law enforcement can be traced to this important reality. Criminals tend to be stupid. In other words, they catch themselves. On the other hand, much of the failure of American law enforcement can be traced to another important reality. Our criminal laws tend to be stupider than our criminals. Take the Combat Meth Act of 2004. It prompted various states to set up electronic systems for limiting and tracking the sales of pseudoephedrine, the widely used cold medicine. These pills are good for easing the dripping and sniffling that come with colds and allergies. But pseudoephedrine is also good for making something bad. Methamphetamine, the savagely addictive drug that is a scourge of communities across the country, especially in rural areas. Thus, banning over-the-counter sales of pseudoephedrine and rationing the amount each customer can buy was well-intentioned. But restricting its sale has created a very lucrative black market for the pills, luring thousands of new peddlers, hustlers, and opportunists into the illicit meth underworld. Meth brokers and producers recruit legions of friends, homeless people, college kids eager for quick cash, and even their own children to go pharmacy to pharmacy with each smurfer, as they are called, buying the limit on pills. Using store specials and even clipping coupons, they can buy a box of pseudoephedrine for eight dollars, then sell the pills to meth producers for fifty dollars. That's a nice profit for thirty minutes or so of their time. This is Jim Hightower saying. So while this drug war on cold pills has added inconvenience to legitimate customers and expense to pharmacies, it has failed to curb the meth trade and has created a booming new network of black market criminals for the police to chase. Can we now admit that this is stupid and try something else? Story out of、uh, OregonSalemNews.com. The feds have begun licensing a whole lot of large illegal pot growers、uh, throughout the country.、Uh, it's not for medical marijuana; it's actually for big pharma. The Drug Enforcement Administration told Legalization Nation in an email last week that 55 unnamed companies now hold licenses to grow cannabis in the United States. It appears as if the upswing in federally approved pot farming is about feeding the need of pharmaceutical companies who want to produce a generic version of THC pill, Marinol, and at least one other cannabis-based pill for a wide variety of new uses. So, corporations can grow pot for their needs. You cannot. U.S. attorneys sent threatening letters to states and cities, including Oakland, warning them against commercial cultivation of marijuana. The DEA is quietly handing out licenses for commercial cultivation.、Uh, cannabis has remained a so-called、uh, so、Schedule One controlled substance alongside heroin and roofies, 
uh, because it had allegedly no medical use and high potential for abuse. Today, 16 states defy the Controlled Substance Act and allow qualified patients access to the drug. Uh, in 2002, activists uh, tried to reschedule the uh, the cannabis plant to get it get it uh, classified as something that is, well, I guess, uh, Schedule Two or Three, something more benign. Uh, on Monday. There was a writ of mandamus filed in a Washington, D.C. circuit court to order the DEA to rule on the matter. Uh, apparently, THC was isolated in the 70s, uh, copied in a lab to produce the prescription synthetic Marinol. In 99, the DEA then downgraded Marinol to a Schedule three drug like codeine, while the plant itself stayed a Schedule one. And in fact... George Schultz and Paul Volcker, of all people, had a piece in the Wall Street Journal, I guess it was today or yesterday, uh, basically asking for a real debate about drug policy. The costs of the war, uh, drug war have become astronomical. Inmates arrested for consuming drugs and possessing small quantities of them crowd our prisons where too often they learn how to become real criminals. Talks about the uh, implications of our drug war in uh, this hemisphere. Uh, this is reference to that commission that I mentioned the other day that uh, also asked for a reevaluation of the war on drugs. We do not support the simple legalization of all drugs. What we do advocate is an open and honest debate on the subject. We want to find our way to a less costly, more effective method of discouraging drug use cutting down on the power of organized crime, providing better treatment, and minimizing negative societal effects. So there you have it. This is why, why we fight, why we lie awake. This is why, this is why we fight. When we die, we will Florida's making Wisconsin look good. On Tuesday, Governor Rick Scott signed a bill into law that will require anyone in Florida who's applying for welfare to pass a drug test. And those who don't pass the test not only can't get welfare for a year, they actually have to foot the cost of the test. This is an outrageous and intrusive policy that plays on stereotypes, scapegoats people on welfare, and violates the Constitution. People on welfare are no more likely to abuse drugs than anyone else in the country. So why is Governor Scott singling them out? And if his logic is not to spend tax dollars on people who use illicit drugs, what's he going to do? Drug test everyone who gets a state tax credit? Governor Scott's law is clearly unconstitutional as it violates the Fourth Amendment rights to be free of unreasonable searches and seizures. A judge in Michigan in 2003 threw out a similar law on just these grounds. So why did Scott and the Florida legislature go forward with it? To score cheap political points against the most vulnerable people in the state 
and to inflict pain and humiliation on those who are already suffering. The Republican agenda in Wisconsin and in Florida now borders on sadism. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. It's the Onion Radio News. Drugs are now legal if the user is employed. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Seeking to focus the drug war on the true enemy, Congress passed a bill today to legalize drug use for the gainfully employed. Drugs are John P. Walters explained the bill on the steps of the nation's capital sometime this afternoon. Uh, do a few bumps of coke at your gay friend's party. Go to your Lollapalooza or rave or whatever it's called this year. But you better make it to work on Monday, buddy, or you're going to jail. I'm a little high myself right now, but hey, I'm getting paid to do this. The U.S. economy also stands to benefit. Initial surveys indicate that the threat of jail will motivate recreational drug users to seek employment, thus reducing the nation's welfare rolls. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News, online at The Onion. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration just released a report and it shows that drug use overall is up by 9%. All right? Okay. So the three different types of drugs that uh, have shown an increase mm -hmm. are um, marijuana, mm -hmm. ecstasy, and methamphetamines. Mm -hmm. All right? Now, with marijuana, its use is up by 8%. Okay. All right? Now, hold. Because some people are saying, whoa, whoa, you see that? We told you. If you try these legalizing marijuana uh, in different places throughout the country and you uh, pretend that it's medicine, it's going to increase its use, it's going to lead to more drug use, and that's the real problem. Aha, we told you. Now, the other counter-argument, the one I would make is, look, we've been doing this drug war for how many years now? How many decades, right? And, and it, it still keeps going up and up and up. So who's right, right? So let's dive into the data. Okay, it turns out marijuana is up by 8%. Not only that, uh, among uh, 12 to 17-year-olds, um, uh, people who thought that there was a great risk uh, from smoking marijuana uh, is actually down from 54.7% in 07, 
who thought there's great risk to smoking marijuana, down to 49.3% in 09. So about five percentage points, people saying, well, maybe it's not as grave a harm to my health as I mm -hmm. thought. Okay, so that's an interesting stat. It's going down a little bit, but those people are probably right. It's probably not a grave risk to your health. But nonetheless, right? Exactly. Okay, so is that the problem? Well, let's look at how much other drug use has gotten. Right. This was, um, like, these are mind-blowing statistics. Mm -hmm. It also focused on ecstasy and methamphetamines, as I mentioned. There were increases in those drugs. 37% incre increase in the use of ecstasy in 2009. 37%. But if you think that's bad, 60% increase in methamphetamine use. Yeah. Ain't got nothing to do with pop, man. <laughs> okay. You know, it's, we got a real problem with drugs in this country. It's... I thought, I have always thought over the last, you know, two, three, five years, it's meth, right? Mm -hmm. A 60% jump in the last year, that's even worse than I suspected, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't know X was, uh, you know, growing at that rate, at, at that rate either, right? So, but this doesn't have anything to do with California saying, oh, medicinal pot or this or that. Mm -hmm. No, these are meth heads in the middle of the country or all across the country, right? No, and you know why they're doing it? Because the drug war ain't working. You can say, oh, don't do it. Just say no. Just say no. And did it work? Did it work in 1980? No. Did it work in 1990? No. 2010? No, 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 no. Okay? Went up 60% last year. How's that drug war working out for you? And by the way, we have tremendous and ridiculous violence, not only in this country, but more so in Mexico and Latin America, and the gangs are out of control. So no winners, nothing but losers. You know, but you'll never get that point through to people's heads. Like, for instance, there's a guy who's uh, quoted in this article. His name is Gil Kurlikowski, mm -hmm. and he's with the Office of National Drug uh, Control Policy, right? Mm -hmm. And, of course, he's not for legalizing marijuana. He thinks it's a terrible idea. Now, when he was asked about why um, ecstasy use has gone up, his whole thing was, well, you know, we took our eye off the ball with that one we got to focus more attention on the dangers of ecstasy and you know we got to really make sure that people know not to use ecstasy oh i didn't know that well then by next year i'm sure it'll go down okay seriously hold on hold on pause you out there okay i don't care if you're a liberal conservative libertarian i don't care who you are do you really believe if kurkowski gets bit serious about ecstasy and focus on it next year that the use is going to go down or that and he's going to do all that using our resources, using our money, our tax dollars. Or you think that Kurkowski, Jim Jablowski over there, he goes crazy over the next five years, ten years, and says, I'm war, triple war, nuclear war on ecstasy. That at the end of that five years or ten years, that he'll have gotten rid of people using ecstasy, like nobody will use ecstasy anymore? Anybody, anybody. Does anybody believe that? No one believes that, right? What are we doing? What are we doing? This is crazy. You're never going to win this war. It ain't about that. It's about, hey, you know, people make their own choices, but can we help them to make the right choices, right? And can we make them, help them to be healthier with whatever they're doing, right? And can we bring the drug use down in smart ways, not in dumb attack war ways, right? Which have proven to be a gigantic, colossal failure. How long is the war going to go on? Unfortunately, the answer is probably as long as people keep making money off it. I will try not to breathe. This decision is mine. I have lived a poor life. These are the eyes that I want you to remember.
The U.S. government has passed laws that make drug dealers rich and increase violence on the streets. That's according to several prominent economics papers on the impact of making drugs, including cocaine and heroin, illegal. Planet Money's Alex Bloomberg reviewed these papers, then ran their conclusions by another expert, an actual drug dealer. The academic argument against drug criminalization goes like this. When you make something illegal, you make it harder and riskier to produce, and that makes it more expensive. You have to sneak it across the border. You have to pay people more to transport it since they're facing jail time. So illegal drugs are much more expensive than they would be if they were legal. But, and here's the key, demand for a lot of drugs is what economists call inelastic. No matter what the drugs cost, people will still pay for them. So making drugs more expensive by criminalization just sends more money to drug dealers. That's the theory anyway. My name is Ricky Ross. I'm known on the streets as Freeway Rick. Well, when I sold drugs, if they'd have told me they was going to legalize it, I'd have been mad because I knew that that was going to drive the price down. Freeway Rick Ross was one of L.A.'s biggest crack dealers in the 80s and 90s. He was arrested in 1996, given a life sentence, but paroled in 2009. So he's a perfect reality check for these academic theories. And I started him off with claim number one. Making drugs illegal drives up the price. Check. The most I ever made in one day was $3 million went through my hands. Out of that three million, uh, I could make off of a million bucks. I could make anywhere from four hundred thousand to two hundred thousand profit. Next up, claim number two: at least some of the money Ross was getting wound up in the hands of criminals. Again, check. I had a crew. You know, I had guys around me that were ruthless and were tough. You know, if I gave a word, they would hurt you. And Ross's money wasn't just going to his own crew. He'd also distribute cash to other big players around the neighborhood. You know, I had a fund where I take care of what's called the big homies, the shot callers, the guys that ran the neighborhood. Because you know they kidnap drug dealers mm-hmm. in South Central. It's sort of like you were paying protection money to these people, right? Absolutely. You can call it protection money, or big homie money, or whatever. But it's all the same thing. They were robbers. They was killers, uh, jackers, as we call them. Absolutely. These days, Ross runs an organization that he says is trying to undo all the harm he did to his community by selling crack. Says a big part of the reason he got into drug dealing in the first place, he was illiterate. That's right. He ran a multi-million-dollar drug business for years without knowing how to read. He finally learned in prison. And talking to Ross, you realize there was this other incentive that doesn't always show up in the economics literature. At least when you get to Ross's level, drug dealing is not only lucrative; it's complex and engaging. Ross was a CEO. He was a manager. His own publicist and accountant. Society had done everything it could to make Rick Ross hate his job and give up. His product was illegal. His costs were enormous. He was a hunted man, and yet I loved it. I felt like I was on top of the world. I felt I was powerful. I felt I'd came. I didn't have to answer to nobody. I mean, it was a dream. It was a, every man's dream to to be free. How much of it was just sort of like the the actual job, and how much of it was just the feeling of being good at something and running this enterprise well? Do you well, you love the feeling of of that you're good, so it didn't feel like it was a burden. You know, to to sneak around at night.、Uh, I've been sneaking around at night since I was 17 years old, stealing cars. You know, we've been hiding all our life. So, does all this mean we should legalize drugs like crack and heroin? 
If we really wanted to make the freeway Rick Rosses of the world miserable, we'd take away their earning potential, right? And some of the economists I spoke to said, yeah, make them legal. Other economists weren't so sure. Economist Peter Reuter has written many, many pages on the topic of drug criminalization. And he says, if you legalize drugs, sure, crime would go down. But drug use, that'd go up. How do we compare the bad outcomes in the two cases? A very large increase in addiction with a very large decrease in crime. I take them both to be real, but I don't know how... That's a value judgment. How do you, which, which is better? As to which is better, right. As for Freeway Rick Ross, his basic take, and a lot of academics agree with him, you need to attack the demand side. Try and reduce the reasons people want to use drugs in the first place. I'm Alex Bloomberg for NPR News.
a secret. I love helping seniors. That's why I like to set aside special time on my show for them. And like phone calls to my Nana, I only do it twice a year. <laughs> this is Stephen Colbert's Senior Moment. <laughs> Folks, we all know that pot smoking is a menace. And not just to our nation's dwindling supply of EL fudge cookies. But look who's toking now. It's pretty much the last place you'd expect to find hundreds of people smoking pot, but seniors living at the Laguna Woods Village Retirement Community, also known as Leisure World, have formed a non-profit, patient-run medical marijuana collective. The thought of nausea disappears, uh, and, the, and it's replaced by, uh, you know, what's commonly called the munchies. Our elderly are getting baked. No wonder they're eating dinner at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Folks, we cannot have the greatest generation burning down. Before you know it, they'll be crocheting blacklight pillows and trying to sync up Perry Como's Lightly Latin with season 3 of Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> Plus, we all know that pot is a gateway drug. Soon these seniors will move on to meth, and no one will know because they've already lost all their teeth. <laughs> But folks, as always, I am mostly worried about how this will affect me. Because as regular viewers know, I am a friend of actor and former oatmeal spokeswalrus Wilford Brimley. From time to time, Wilford calls me to offer his wisdom. He's sort of my mentor. And the other night, I received a disturbing phone call. And since I record all of my calls, it's for the lawsuit. I can play it for you now. Jim. Hello? Hey, college. Wilford? It's Wilford. Wilford Brimley. Wilford, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Are you okay? I am as fried as a churro. Smoked a big furry nug of that cosmic goo marijuana. It's prescription. It's for my diabetes. 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 You ever say a word so many times that loses all meaning? Wilford, I have to work tomorrow. I won't take any more of your time. Hey, what do you think really goes on inside a dishwasher? I'm thinking about crawling up in there. No, don't. Should I send somebody over there? Not unless they want to see a 76-year-old man eating oatmeal in the buff. Hey, that guy in the oatmeal box. I think he's looking at me. Okay, I'm hanging up. No, Colbert, wait. Yes? I love you. Uh, thanks, Wilford. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what to... What's, what's that noise? 
I gotta go. I put a DVD of Cocoon in my toaster oven to rewind it, and now the whole breakfast nook's on fire. Where's the fire extinguisher? Put it out with oatmeal. The oatmeal's on fire. Kids. Kids, listen to your elders. They're a font of wisdom. And elders, lay off the dubage. How the war on drugs is killing us and our neighbors in Mexico. During Prohibition in the 1920s, we had gangsters with colorful nicknames like Lucky Luciano and Bugsy Siegel. Now, during our current marijuana prohibition, we have gangsters with names like Edgar the Barbie Valdez and Ignacio Nacho Coronel. Prohibition always breeds gangsters, and the current one has led to massive gangs and massive crime. In the 1920s, not only did arrests for drunkenness and disorderly contact increase once we banned alcohol, but so did thefts and burglaries, homicides, assaults, and batteries. The number of federal convicts increased by 561%. The federal prison population grew by 366%. And total federal expenditures on penal institutions increased by 1,000%. Sound familiar? We had the same exact kind of enormous jumps in incarceration, crime, and prison expenditure under this current pot prohibition. But worse yet, Mexico has been ripped apart by this senseless war on drugs. Since Felipe Calderon, under the encouragement of the Bush administration, started his fruitless war against drugs in Mexico in 2007, 30,200 people have died in drug-related violence. That's a stunning number. There have been decapitated bodies, grisly murders of every variety, and just earlier this week, two college students were fatally shot and set on fire in Juarez. In fact, over 3,100 people have been killed in Juarez, Mexico this year alone. When is enough enough? We tried the war on drugs for decades, and it didn't work. Worse yet, it created more crime, more gangs, and more murder. It's time to end this and legalize. Okay, my name is Beth. I'm calling from East Brunswick, New Jersey. I'd like to start by thanking you for your very informative and well-done show. I found you by accident while perusing through iTunes and feel like I hit the jackpot, so much so that I recently became a member. Recently, you've been making a point about progressive individualism on the issue, and I completely agree. 
for a long time now, I've been thinking there are so many people working in the trenches on really worthwhile progressive issues, but it's all kind of lost in the inability to message these issues because there are so many. I happen to be the least likely of activists and have vacillated over and over on whether or not I should just give it up, throw in the towel and go find my inner peace, or go whole hog and take to the street. But over what? It seems to me that all these great issues are mute unless one hurdle is overcome, and that's the election and campaign finance reform. To me, it seems to be worthwhile and could possibly be the unifying cause, which could transcend through to all races and parties and affiliations. Because until our elected officials are no longer beholden to the powers that finance these campaigns, we haven't got a chance. This, of course, would require an intellectual plan formulated by scholars who fully understand the process and how to rewrite the system. And I leave people like you, Cenk, and Sam to find them. Maybe you could start with places like the Brennan Center for Justice and the Century Foundation. I know this is a big issue for Russ Feingold, too. Then people like me could work to spread the message through social networking and the like. Anyway, from what I recently read, the Egyptian Revolution was uh, several years in the making before the streets were taken. And I don't know, this feels like the cause to me, and I hope you'll think so too. Thanks, have a great day, bye-bye. Hi Jay, this is Mike Cohen from Rochester, New York. I want to comment on um, your campaign, the, the, your, your crusade you have right now that you want to um, have like a central message place where we can clarify and 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 make our progressive message more consistent my only problem with that is that we can't get our message out all you need to do is look at look at the coverage of you know the anti-war demonstrations and the and the you know demonstrations against scott walker and all that stuff and they don't get half the coverage that even a sparsely attended Tea Party event does on network news and every place except for the shows that you have on your show, which is kind of a preaching to the choir. My suggestion would be more along the lines of what I, what I, an idea I kind of thought sounded good concerning an effort to control gas prices, which was instead of like boycotting a station for a day or instead of boycotting all gas stations for one day, just pick one and target them for the month, whether it be Exxon or, or you know, wherever, Sunoco, whatever. And if you do that for the whole month, they would feel it more. That one in particular would feel it more. And um, maybe we could do something like that, and which is to select a target, select a location, and we as progressives try and show our economic power the only thing I'm not sure about is how do we select the location? Do we have, you know, you or the Jank uh, from the Young Turks or who selects that location? And the fact that progressives have got to kind of set aside their own pet cause, you know, whether it be legalizing marijuana or gay rights or, or whatever it happens to be, and support each other. 
you know, and so even if the cause isn't something you're particularly concerned about for that month, you know, show some solidarity with with your progressive brethren. That's my two cents. It'd be interesting to hear your opinion. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Of course, at the very end of today's show, there will be continued discussions about veganism via uh, many, many, many voicemails that have been left that we will eventually get through, hopefully, um, on, at least until I decide to just cut off the conversation entirely, which will almost certainly happen at some point. Now, what I will take uh, just a moment to respond to is the the last voicemail we just heard regarding uh, the call for progressives to come together and boycott a different uh, company on a monthly basis or something along those lines. Uh, here's what I had to say about that. Let's all think back to when BP spilled untold millions of gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. It was a national catastrophe and uh, headline news for months and months. And naturally, a boycott was called for against BP. And uh, to this day, I've never heard of a story talking about the effectiveness of that boycott. So take whatever lessons you will from that small uh, small story regarding people's ability to follow through on boycotts and their effectiveness uh, you know if if that wasn't enough to uh, you know to make people stop shopping at BP I simply don't know what sort of motivation we could uh, we could pull together to get progressives to boycott anyone frankly Secondly, I hope uh, many of you will remember the the uh, uh, there was a pair of voicemails left at the very 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 end of uh, of the previous episode. They were the last voicemails I played, and I prefaced them by saying that I was very interested to hear what sort of reactions uh, people may have to them. And by far, the best reaction I have heard uh, to date came in through the Best of the Left Facebook page just this morning. And uh, so we were all lucky enough to have uh, Justin's summary of, of that voicemail. So if you don't remember what I'm talking about, this will certainly jog your memory. Uh, so, so Justin's reaction simply was just to summarize the voicemail, and this is what he had to say. Quote, Hi, my name is blank, and my social security number is blank. Please don't share that information. How dare you argue against the ethics of mediating? I used to personally threaten cows' lives and then murder them and devour their corpses. So really, I'm the ethical one. Again, please don't tell people what my name and social security number are. But, to repeat, my name is blank and my social security is blank. Fuck you, hippie. Love the show. I'm never listening again. Give me a call sometime. Have a nice day. And don't publish my name. Unquote. So uh, thanks to Justin for that. I genuinely laughed out loud when I read that the first time. And uh, yeah, that I think that summed it up nicely. So now, of course, as I always do, I just want to thank a couple of members. I have a special thanks today, though. Uh, so first of all, Carl P. Sorry, sorry, Carl. This is not the special thanks. Uh, normal thanks to Carl P., who signed up for a uh, Satanist monthly membership back on November 5th. And uh, a, a, also a normal thanks to Hillary W., who signed up for a, uh, a leftist membership back on uh, October 28th. But what makes uh, Hillary's thanks special is that I'm going to uh, tell you guys something that I should have told when she sent me the email originally. 
So when I when I picked out her name out of the stack uh, as as a member to thank, I looked up her email address and I realized that she had written me this email uh, that I'd never gotten around to a discussion on the show. What she says is, uh, in part, could you please ask everyone to give blood and sign up for the National Bone Marrow Registry? I've lost some people in my life recently, my father being one, and he didn't make it to the stage of treatment. But if he had, I wished for the biggest database possible. It's free. It's simple. It's practically painless. It's just giving of the self in a way that is so fulfilling and good. Uh, so there you go. Give blood and sign up for the National Bone Marrow Registry. And now, of course, after asking you to do something uh, so profoundly uh, life-changing and important, I feel kind of dirty to ask you to do uh, anything less than that, but I will anyways. Please continue to support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. You can help spread the word online by sharing individual clips of the show through your social networks. Uh, it's incredibly easy to do that through the website. You can uh, donate your Twitter and Facebook accounts to the show to help spread the word. And to stay connected to the show between episodes, you can actually join up with us directly on Facebook and Twitter as well, of course. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the original sources and music for this and every episode, all of that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and Chicagoland, uh, calling a response to the discussion back and forth about vegetarianism, veganism. You know, it's obviously a question with no answer that, you know, no one from on high is going to tell us what the right thing to do is. I think the search for that within our own lives, what's right, what's wrong, just from a philosophical, moral perspective, is a good and healthy one. We got to remember when we're dealing with other people and trying to influence them, which I guess is sort of the point in your podcast is I think maybe a good analogy is how uh, people on the the right feel about some of these sex issues where it's like, you know, pretending that gay people haven't been around forever or that teenagers aren't going to have sex, you know, if you just talk about abstinence, being like, well, you don't understand human nature. They're young and they're going to have sex, so let's figure out how to educate them as best we can and get them to make better decisions, but acknowledge that, you know, teenagers are going to do it with one another. And so, um, in transposing that over to nutrition and food, meat's been around forever. Animals eat it. We're animals. And uh, it's a reasonable thing to, to keep doing it. And there's the habit of it. And so, if you want to influence people, talk more about, less about the, it's a living creature, whatever, that's an important part, but the more effective strategy might be you know, here's the amount of protein that a person needs, and here's the amount of money that your grocery bill for a family of four is going to be. 
if you have meat versus if you're having tofu and beans and and uh, replacing nuts, you know, for the meat and stuff like that. There's little incremental things that you can use to influence the people who are on the fence, and everyone can get smarter about it and then make that very personal decision on their own. And that's probably true of most issues that would be on your fine podcast. So I appreciated the debate. It's a, it's a stressful one to think about because I love meat. And truthfully, in a couple months in a year, I might be a full-time vegetarian. I've been flirting with it for a couple of years, and I got a feeling it's going to happen soon. And it's a tough decision. So that's coming from a guy who's making that decision. Great show, though, and interesting debate, as always. Hey, Jay, this is Oni, one of your friends and fans living out in Japan. I just wanted to say that uh, I really appreciate the way that you illustrate how well freedom of speech works by sharing with us all the lunatic at the end of your show who called in and described how he stares in the eyes of cows before killing them and eating them. I'm not a vegan. I'm actually a really shit-poor vegetarian. But, uh, well, he articulates the other side very well. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Hi, Jay. This is Michael from Glen Burnie. I just wanted to weigh in on the vegan versus omnivore debate that's been going on, and uh, mainly because I had a few thoughts I hadn't really heard anyone else represent yet. Uh, I do apologize in advance for this being a little bit longer, but I didn't think it was uh, something that was uh, sound bite-ish. So um, basically, I'll just start with this. On the matter of morality, I think that when all considerations of you know what non-existent deities want or intent are removed from the conversation, that it really becomes apparent that, that we must reason for ourselves what is and what isn't moral. Um, I believe that that those things would separate us from animals that we consume, like intelligence, ability to reason, self-reflection, uh, actually give us the responsibility not to confuse what is with what ought to be, just because nature and evolution thrive uh, on intelligent species destroying other species to survive, doesn't mean that we're bound to do the same thing by some sort of rules that are in place out there somewhere. We've evolved to adapt our surrounding, make tools that help us provide for ourselves in ways that no other species in the history of the Earth has done. And we've begun to play with the very genetics of plants and animals to provide, uh, you know, in more abundance of things that are usually rare in nature. Um, based on all that, I just, I can't really, I, I, I won't say can't, I don't accept that killing anything, uh, even less intelligent beings, when we have the opportunity not to, can possibly be a morally correct action. I really think it behooves us as a race to find a way past this. Um, on the matters of individuals choose, on the matter of individuals choosing to abstain from eating meats and and uh, using animal byproducts, uh, it certainly follows then, after all that, that this really is the most moral action we can choose given the circumstances. But this isn't a vacuum that we're talking about here, that this decision is being made and we live in a consumer-driven society. And the needs of uh, the wealthier people, which, you know, even the poor in America have it better off than a lot of people in this world. 
Uh, it's mostly provided by abusing those who are underprivileged and allowing vast amounts of people to go undernourished and without even the basic necessities of life. Uh, look at the countries in Africa where people starve en masse and yet the U.S. public interest is, uh, is, is being able to have a house and a car and an iPhone for everyone. That's considered the bigger priority because this is our country we're talking about, USA. How can the morally correct action be to continue doing nothing and to continue consuming? Look at the companies like Foxconn in China who provide the workhorses, uh, in other words, underpaid and chronically mistreated, overworked people, which make our fungal gadgets that, that uh, we use to even listen to this very iPod. And they do it at a rate of next to nothing. These people make a fraction of what we do. We're three to four times as long as us. Don't even go home. They literally live at the factory and regularly try to commit suicide as a means to escape from their job. This company has literally had to take measures to stop people from killing themselves on a regular basis because it was hurting productivity. How can it be the morally correct action to buy Nintendos, iPads, iPods, knowing that part of that cost that we're paying for is these people's lives? So what then? Do we become farmers where we can be assured that everything we own, consume, and produce was done so within our ethical standards but miss out on all the advancements that we're developing? Or do we continue to make some morally incorrect choices in the interest of supporting our families and providing the best lives possible for our children? I'm not sure I know the right answer here. I know an electronics assembled by the grossly mistreated workers at Foxconn. I don't sell my luxuries and send all the proceeds to starving people in Africa. And I do eat meat that is produced by companies which mistreat sentient animals and intelligent animals before they kill them. And I hardly think I'm alone in that, though. Given that what it would take to make change in these situations is so far beyond what any one person or even one country can be expected to do, I hardly begrudge anyone for not emulating Gilligan's Island, but I also don't get angry at those who make a choice not to participate in one thing while participating in others. So that's basically my two cents, or maybe that's ten cents, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, take it for what it's worth, uh, and once again, thank you for everything that you do today. Hi, Jay. This is Ashley from Syracuse. Um, of course, commenting on the whole vegan conversation. I am a vegan, but I think that a lot of people have been saying a lot about the sanctity of life or the, you know, situation with the animals. And I just wanted to bring up the situation of the workers. Obviously, even things that say organic or grass-fed, we all know that it's really industry. I think what changed my mind was hearing about a lot about the situation of the workers in these like confined spaces and the dust that they're breathing in with like it's a mix of gander and feed and excrement from the animals and mold and gas from the heater and carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide. And they're exposed to ringworm and hepatitis E, which I didn't even know existed, and drug-resistant bacteria and MRSA and salmonella. And I just think as a progressive, you know, workers' rights are super important, and I think people leave that out of the conversation. On top of the fact that it's well known that there's a huge increase in depression and anxiety, suicide, and violence and domestic violence and I just that's just a lot of uh, weight on my shoulders that as 
a non-animal consumer, I don't have to worry about as much. Also, I wanted to bring up a sect of Hinduism called Jainism, and the people in that culture only eat things that don't hurt the animal to take it and are dying on their own. So when somebody was talking about whether or not vegetables have feelings, um, I do also think that that's kind of a bogus argument, but this sect of Jainism I just think is really interesting that they eat dried fruit and vegetables after they've already died. They eat milk and nuts and cheeses. You know, they wear wool, but they don't wear leather. So it's just a, an interesting point of view to keep in mind. All right, I love your show. Thanks so much for what you do.